forward, seeker. When petals fall like ashes, do not despair. Hip hop is here for you, ready with the truth of you. When you feel sad and blue, stay strong, don't hide it, boo. Use its lyricism, not pills and potions. Make a conscious decision to calm iller minds' commotion. In this guide, you will find wisdom and knowledge foraged from MC Masters past. The everlasting healers, fallen heroes and dreamers, hip-hop speakers of truth. Use it with the youth, that they may blossom and shine with divine light, despite lifelong plights, through darkness and night, to live life fully, in joy's delight. Blessings and life from your guide. Hey, this is Kids from Glow With The Flow podcast. I've got my trusty steed, my co-host Ben. Hi, it's Ben from Let's Feed Bro. And today's special guests are a group from Birmingham who will introduce themselves now to you. Hello, my name is Curly, otherwise known as Alan McGeechee. I'm a performance poet and hip-hop artist and I am a CEO of uh, Memorime Education, co-founded with my colleague, Richard Dreadlock Alien Grant. Yes, Mr. Dreadlock Alien, uh, aka known as Mr. Grant, uh, poet, writer and performer. Glad to be here today. Yeah, big ups guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Tell us about Memorime. So Memorime is a collective of talented people from based in the West Midlands with a rich history of performance-based education, live events and lots of, due to the, due to the recent requirements with school shutting down we've kind of pivoted into doing work within organizations now consulting around themes to do with equality diversity and inclusion but we've got a good 20 years history of operating within the midlands and rich was a big proponent of spoken word poetry in that area and he's probably best to really kind of cover that bit but there's there's a, a real big section in a, a book recently released to do with spoken word which has recognized Rich's early days starting out in spoken word. So speaking about heritage, speaking about spoken word as a movement within the West Midlands, becoming more and more documented now. And I think it's great to see people like Rich who have been on the forefront of spoken word getting some recognition. Yeah, so uh, over to you, Rich, a little bit, I think. Um, so yeah, as Curly's touched on uh, the base, we're a performance poetry, a spoken word, live literature, hip hop based uh, collective. We're not really page poets. A lot of our stuff doesn't transcend into the written form. So we're kind of strictly spoken word performance poets. And um, we've used that as a vessel uh, to educate into schools, uh, to heal within communities, to look at how words are affected amongst people. At the minute we're using words on the front line, the systemic language challenge. And we're looking at five particular words, black, white, BAME, uh, race, uh, and other. <laughs> Please explain. So those five reductionist terms, if you're gonna look at systemic language change, you have to look at the stem of language. Uh, we're not just looking at those words, we're challenging them uh, head on. Uh, we're looking at the etymology of the word race. We're trying to deconstruct global uh, interpretations of, of a false theory, really. We're from one race and no one can actually be racist. Racism does not exist use those terms you're you're subscribing to a theory that we're from different genetic gene pools uh, however there is no gene for race there is no chromosome for race so it's an incorrect use of the word same as black it's a reductionist term same as white uh they're, they're the language of the separatists uh, and respecting the journeys that have come to today but it's time to fracture those terms down there are many many different shades of black 
Angola, Somalia, Caribbean, so on and so forth, each with cultural differences. Uh, the same with white. We've put a counter term to the term Bane. Uh, we've got a term called WEMP, W-E-M-P, which is exactly the same, mirrored. So a colour, a geography and a social status. Uh, white, it used to be white European majority populist, but now it's white English because of Brexit. White English majority populist. So again, a reductionist term to put all white people together. And we know that's not true. Throughout Europe, there's many different languages, cultures, heritages that need respecting and don't like being termed together as white. So it's about challenging these terms. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a long job. We're not going to achieve it overnight. Look at the word Caucasian. It came from the same 17th century Austrian chap who defined what white is. It's actually not from the Caucasus Mountains and it's certainly not Asian. However, the word Caucasian is still embedded in American language, in our laws. The word race is a defining factor within legalese in this country and language and the laws. And it's written into every organization's manuscripts and manifestos, the term race. So asking them to just take that out, <laughs> place it with, uh, you know, one race, uh, different phenotypes and things like that. Look at the biology of race. That's a long term challenge that I certainly won't win during my lifetime. But if we can ask questions about these terms and get people to look at the impact of these words. So they're the words that we challenge. We also promote global values literacy. Curly and I, these are 50 beautiful words that we've gathered that we don't want to go extinct. Kindness, uh, punctuality, <laughs> just general values that you've instilled into your child. And we looked at religions. Uh, government come in eight years ago saying British cultural values, there's five values. And we were like, okay, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. respect. Um, one, of, one of them was drinking tea. One of them was eating fish and chips. <laughs> one of them was wearing a bowler hat. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit crazy. I think it was a political move from the uh, anti-terrorist kind of size. So democracy and rule of law suddenly became two intrinsic values that we had to teach kids. And we thought, hang on, no. You know, we can't just scare kids and then say, look, here's democracy, this is a way. Let's look at the other value system. So we went to faith-based schools. And again, a competitive edge. A Sikh school, 19 values. Uh, Muslim school, 22 values. Uh, Jesuit school, 34. So again, we've started to build these words and that becomes the framework for the, the work that we promote. Uh, we're doing a project called Safeguarding Words, which is a 10-year commitment to promoting values literacy. And we're five or six years into that and we're doing really, really well. Uh, Curly's the CEO of the National Values Literacy Plan and he's just scooped a global framework now. So we're, we're just changing all our resources to incorporate other languages. Uh, we're now stop just submitting in English, you can submit in Swahili. Uh, you can actually record an audio. So it doesn't matter, I might not be able to understand the word you're saying, but I'll hear the beauty of your words, uh, so on and so forth. So we're increasing our platforms to go online, uh, using technology with words. Yes, yeah, so mainly to challenge five systemic language change, but to promote values literacy, to heal with words, which is what we do in communities. We do wellbeing workshops, get youngsters to understand these values and to use these words to describe each other, uh, describe things that happen during the day uh, and to promote these values, really. So that's what we do on a daily basis in schools, hospitals, organisations. Um, we use the power of spoken word. We get people to do their own four line uh, in a day and they go through all that nervousness of performing and getting it wrong. And, and, and we, we go through all that page to stage. We ask them to do it in a foreign accent, to whisper their poems. So they get all the nerves out and then at the end, when they've done their four lines, they're really proud and they get an applause and all the tears will up in their eyes and they're really proud of the four lines they've done. That's why we do it. That's why Curly and I, you know, we're not into supporting the academics, publishing books and editors. It's the, the kid that hasn't written for three weeks 
or that's turned up just because the rapper coming into school. Uh, the one that the teachers say, oh, he hasn't done anything for, for ages, you'll never get him to engage. And yet he's the first one with the hand up because you've freestyled his name and what he's wearing into a poem. And all of a sudden you've got his, his attention uh, and you're playing with language in front of him. It's like a footballer coming in and doing loads of keepy-uppies. Poets and lyricists and rappers go in and they take words and they make shapes and they do vocal gymnastics and they, they, they take the immediate and they, they relate it to this and they respond. And that magic with words just entices people, lets them know that there's a language out there and they can, you know, a vocabulary impresses me, not a constabulary. <laughs> so, uh, no comment isn't, you know, that, that you need to have the words behind you. Don't just do no comment, bro. You know, talking your way out of situations is massive. So I'm a Kung Fu artist when it comes to words, <laughs> disarming words, so on and so forth. And these are skills you use, not just in well-being, but in life, in the future. Negotiating skills, confrontation, backing down, all these kind of skills. I learned a lot from Curly. He works in the pupil referral units where on a daily basis words are used in aggression, in a war, in a classroom. Uh, real harmful words. Most powerful muscle is your tongue and the youngsters don't hold back sometimes, especially when they've learned these words for the first time. And they're like new weapons. They go out and say them and throw them and they don't know the impact. So Curly, on a daily basis, looks at young people and the language and, and where these words have come from, what they actually mean. What did you intend? Uh, a great thing Curly does is the anger management one. Instead of having one word to describe anger, we look at the 50 shades of anger. Words like peeved. Remember when you was a bit peeved at something? So you allow that word to have a state. Y'all can be peeved. It's when you're just tapping your fingers. And then you get a bit of, You don't have to just go to, to losing it in red mist. Uh, so if you can equip youngsters with 50 words to describe their anger and, and categorise it and see it as an ascending form, Curly has a lot of success with that, taking them on emotional journeys and, and reading body language as well. You know, that's a, a all part of performance poetry. You perform with your confidence or, or your humility or your quick-wittedness. So body language is a big thing that we teach people, which isn't in words. You know, how you walk towards a situation, how you stand up and address a teacher. This communicates long before your, your mouth is open. So, yeah, Curly and I are committed at the front line. <laughs> people referring to secure units, mental health institutes. Uh, and we're going there just with words uh, and normality, having fun. Uh, we're not professors. We don't take books. And we have a laugh, basically. Then we teach beatboxing. Uh, no matter what language you do, a little bit of beatboxing uh, and a few rhyming games. And we're there, we have great fun. <laughs> Good job we got in it, Curly, <laughs> really. Hey, man, I'm blessed, blessed, blessed. Yeah, I wanted to say as well, like, even like we've had some feedback from some of the work that we've done from real high up in the cabinet office as well. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold tight, Curly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess the best applaud is from the pupils, right? <laughs> Well, funny you should say that. The best applaud for this little project we're talking about was actually you and your poem. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, let me just tell you the little story behind this. All right, so here we go. So we met the Dudley CCG on this project, Black Lives Matter, and we met the comms team. And obviously we're talking about Black Lives Matter. They want to talk about vaccine hesitancy. It's really, really important. They got a bit of money to spend. So they threw a bit of money at Curly and I, and we did a vaccine hesitancy project. Can I just interject as well? Vaccine yeah. hesitancy was a term coined by Rich, which then was used in the media. What? So during the course of that consultation. Well, sort of. Basically, I refused to get into the project if they were going to call me a refusenik or a, an abstainer. I said, bro, no, it's, it's not, that's a bit hardcore. I'm just hesitant. 
And the term vaccine hesitancy was a term used for parents to do with mumps and measles and rubella. So it hadn't really been used. So I said, look, you're going to get a lot more people if you just acknowledge that there's a hesitancy there. So language has sort of changed overnight. And it all, but, but then when they said, can you do a poem to promote? And we said, nah, we ain't having it. <laughs> We're part of the 5% that don't believe, you know. And so they wanted to explore that. How are they going to reach the 5%? So that became a thing. And um, we did loads of poems. And then the lady who did it played it at vaccine board meetings around the country. Uh, and obviously there's a meeting with 50 odd doctors. And I think it was your poem uh, has relevance to a doctor being a twat. Is that right? Yes, it definitely <laughs> does. Yeah, I, I might have to read that poem out, you know. Okay. Well, Curly will send you the, the attachment because we've mounted all the videos in nice tellies on a PDF. But it was yours that got the best laugh because there were doctors there was 50 doctors at the conference uh, and they went through all the poems we did the Jamaican Patois one we did my poem about all the hippies and the crusties never trusting them and about 1.2 million visitors that don't want to be caught and then your poem which was you know about your fears as a young woman but great language as well and they loved it that was the line I think they do agree that they have been accused of being a twat and making silly decisions thank you so much for playing that you, j- just to contextualise to the listeners for the listeners I've been in many many situations over the years where I felt like I've been talking to some medical professionals and they're seeing not me as a human being an individual a person they're seeing somebody's clogging up the waiting list or I've been made to feel like my opinion doesn't count or like I don't know as much as them and when I raise my concerns about my own health care and what drugs they want to give me or what treatment they propose to give me if I'm doing something that seems to be challenging them or if I do challenge them overtly and say look you're being patronizing instead of saying to me oh my gosh I'm so sorry please accept my apologies I didn't mean to come across like that Uh, what I actually was saying was blah 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 I meant this I intended that yeah first line that comes out of their mouth is usually I'm not being patronizing which is like hang on a minute, now you're arguing with me about what I feel. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. complete dislocation and... Um, for sure, for sure. I think with the power of words, the power to affect change is an inherent part of that. And mm-hmm. when we use them in forms where they're not just written on the page, like you said, page, poets... The audiences that you can affect are so huge and the way that you can affect people is so vast. It's so powerful that it can change people's professional attitudes, create elements of reflection that people wouldn't normally sort of dip into and just recalibrate people's perception of what's going on. So I think because it touches people's humanity, they, through words, you express a shared a language with somebody you're communicating through one language and then the power to sort of reflect and take in for both people just uh wipes wipes the floor with you doesn't it well um i'd make i'd like to make a few comments um first of all i think what you're doing beautiful is thank you (laughs) utterly amazing i wasn't aware that this was going on but one of the things that I'm, I'm intrigued about, and hopefully you 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 can answer this question. I just want to make another some other comments first, though. Is like, what was it that actually was it that either triggered you or alerted you to this actual process? You know, the fact that this is 
this is going on. I remember many, many years ago, I read a book called 1984 by George Orwell. And one of the books that we, that we read at school. And then fast forward to 2003, I got a job with the, what was then was the DRC, Disability Rights Commission, the Disability Rights Commission. And they introduced these laws in early 2000s, which actually brought in changes in terminology. And the idea behind it was that, you know, you change the terminology and you change the mindset of people. And then obviously that is something which was absolutely revealed in, in George Orwell's book about, I mean, he called it, you know, was it thought? You speak. Oh, yeah. That's right. So, so actually, when you control the language, you control what's going on in people's minds. So it's actually, and so that's what I was going to say. That ultimately, the, the the use of terminology and language is kind of really it's fundamentally. It's, I think it's political. There's a there's an agenda there, which is designed to groom and condition the minds of people into whatever cultural stasis that, that they want people to be trapped in. So I'm, I'm curious about how you yourself came to that knowledge and understanding and why you acted, you know, and how you, I see how you've acted, but, you know, what, what was it that led you down that road? And then, and then maybe I'll, I'll come back to you again in a bit. I'm curious to hear that. you? Yeah, I'll quickly jump in. I think growing up in the 80s, being of mixed heritage, you know, very quickly you're pointed out, whether it's teachers or or pupils, kids in the playground. And for whatever reason, obviously, there's an unconscious bias that tends to go against the grain of who you actually are. I was labelled in so many different ways and I had to tell my story and redefine who I was in my head and not subscribe to everyone else's definition of who they thought I was, some misgivings and myths and such so for, for me really it was when um, I hit my teens I think uh, it was where I started to learn more and um, kind of uh, gravitate to hip hop because they were telling similar stories uh, in particular I, I started listening to Tupac and his track You Gotta Keep Your Head Up for me it was a bit of an anthem uh, during my teens and then I started putting pen to paper and I found that process very empowering, just putting writing down my accounts, thoughts, feelings on any given topic. And being able to do that was a very cathartic process for me. I had a lot of pent up rage and anger and frustration and for whatever reason, uh, and it flowed through the pen. And that enabled me to really consider how I processed emotions through words, just that just the practice of putting words onto, onto paper or putting it into words and thinking about how to perform that. Should I give a bit more space to that word at the end of that sentence? Because then it might mean a little bit more. Tone, tonality is very important as well. Um, they say that communication, only 7% is carried through the word itself. 35% is through the tone, how that word is expressed. And the rest is body language, as Rich mentioned earlier. So for me, it was to recapture who I was and to also articulate that for everyone else's benefit so they don't affect me with their unconscious bias. Brilliant. That's really deep. Nice. What area did you grow up in? Acox Green, South Birmingham. So during the 80s, uh, it wasn't cool to be, you know, uh, of mixed heritage back then. 
Uh, and I remember as a kid, actually, um, my father, my grandfather, so my grandfather on my mother's side being white, my dad being black. And whenever the families got together, uh, there was always this standoff uh, or there was always something escalating anyway to do with race, blah, blah, blah. Your kid's going to grow up confused. Uh, I remember my granddad there shouting at my dad, wow, the gold was there and uh, you blacks weren't doing anything with it. So we, ah. da, 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 da. So we might as well have took it and da, 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 da. it wouldn't have been worthless. Da, 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 da. Wouldn't have, you know what I mean? So it was interesting. It was just it was just recycling Enoch Powell nonsense and the other bits and bobs you probably heard down the pub. But my granddad was a damaged individual himself. You know what I mean? He grew up basically rejected by both parents growing up had to find his own way he, he, and he was ripe really for far right rhetoric you know during the 50s and 60s so uh, we all know that he loved us you know what I mean in his own way grandmother always, used to always put him in his place as well but that's a whole other story <laughs> but that's a whole other story but yeah family dynamics often um, how uh, uh, you know attribute to, to to my calling as well I don't know why I'm speechless it's brilliant so it really really impacted I mean, it impacted very directly on your day-to-day life, didn't it? You could see that, you know, you used the word unconscious bias and, and you had to respond to it. Because I'd like to hear, uh, you know, your, your like how you came to it. It's very similar. Yeah. Um, well, Curly's is probably more um, musical-based to do with the lyrics and, and, and the hip-hop than, than mine is. Mine was more religious and poetical. Uh, that's my encounters with words. Very early on, I was uh, taught to read uh, scripture, so on and so forth. And we were banned from any other books that weren't can published I, by. Can I just ask what scriptures were they? Right. Um, it was actually a, a version of the King James Version. It was the Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't let you read any other literature other than what they've printed in the New York Tract and Bethel Society. So I read a lot, uh, read a lot, and, and loved language. I love the beautiful words in the Bible, so on and so forth. That lot and language of of being spoken out loud was great. Uh, And then um, poetically, uh, a poet called John Agard uh, wrote a poem called Half Cast, which is a poem of protest. And it changed my life because I was proud of being half cast. Uh, I used to make up that I'd come from half cast land uh, and I wasn't going to tell anybody where it was. Uh, And then they changed to mixed race. Uh, So I said, oh, I'm from mixed race here. Uh, where's that? Not telling you. Uh, and then, uh, not so long ago, the, the trigger that, that Ben was on about was there was a commemoration for the celebration of the abolition of slavery. Uh, and everyone was looking at language and, and the language that stemmed from slavery and so on and so forth. And etymology came up, the history of words. So I said, hang on, why am I being changed from mixed race to dual heritage? Uh, and the forethinkers of this, like 15, 20 years ago, were looking at the biology of race uh, the etymology of the word race. So I said as a, as a student uh, learning language, I went onto an etymologist site and I said, hang on, uh, if, the, if we're from one race, how can anyone be racist? How can racism exist? Uh, and then I just left it. I wanted a few answers. Uh, and I didn't realise that etymologists were so passionate about their words and so political as well. So not a Northern European etymologist were arguing that the word raka uh, was the root of the word and it's um, from species and breeding and so on and so forth. Shakespeare argued for the race of mankind in the se- early 17th sort of century. Uh, the Bible talk of one race, one rib, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and then I went away and came back two weeks later and there's over 400 messages and it seemed like I'd started World War Three between the etymologists. 
uh, African Nubian etymologists were coming with a different interpretation of the word. And generally, progressive thinking looked towards the 17th century and someone called Boom and Black or Black and Bloom or some, some name like that. They kind of come up with three theories of race uh, based on skulls. Uh, so a biological, genetical thing. Uh, and um, my mum and dad wouldn't have been allowed to marry in America 50 years ago because of being from mixed heritages. So I looked at the language of race and, and, and disarming it. Uh, and it's kind of like, once you believe that man didn't go to the moon and we were actually fooled, you think, hang on, so we're being fooled about this kind of word called race. It's a man-made structure, uh, not a very clever man as well. And the, the genetic difference uh, has been disproved many, many, many times. Uh, I'm a fully functioning adult from apparently two different races. Uh, you know, so this blended kind of family, this whole thing. Uh, and the world's more globalised. There's more blended people on this planet than there is single ancestry informative markers. Uh, and that's all it is in your DNA. You can't trace where your ancestors are from. You've got ancestry informative markers, which were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, where people didn't globalise and move around. So you might have a flavour of East Africa or Somalia or kind of a blend that will give you a guess of an idea. But we're so mixed up along the way. Uh, there's no kind of real uh, anchor to where you're from. So, so modern day progressive thinking is looking at taking the words race, black, white out, and replacing it with three markers, which is NHC, nationality, culture and heritage. So your nationality is a very empirical, where's your passport from, where were you born, what flag do you wave, so on and so forth. Your culture is how you live and how you grow. So my, I've got a Mess Midlands, Birmingham, Dudley culture. That's the language I hear, the, the, the prices I pay. And my heritage is Indo-Caribbean, Anglo-Indo-Caribbean. So I have a blended heritage of, of my mom up north, my dad who's Indo-Jamaican, not Afro-Caribbean, he's Indo-Jamaican. A lot of different histories as well, you know, so a lot of different interpretations on things. Abolition, for example, everyone thinks that's a great thing. But for me, no, my pe that was the start of indentured labour for Indians. So abolition isn't like a good thing. And it happened 100 years after everyone else had finished slavery. So the British are no saints because of it. And the whole abolitionist movement then just robbed the plantations and called themselves churches and parishes and built county councils over here with the same proceeds of slavery and sugar production uh, using indentured labour. So there's nothing to be going blowing a trumpet about. They abolished slavery because it was cheaper to produce sugar in the South Americas uh, and tobacco and cotton. And it became harder. The profit margin became lower from the Caribbeans. That's why they handed it over to the parishes who then became the slave masters or the, the community leaders or whatever you wanted to, still with their collection pots, still building Kenilworth Council or Kettering Council buildings with parish money. So, yeah, I'm a bit annoyed about words and how they've been used. They're the social fabric of our being. Uh, and, and being progressive about it, you've got to take out the stem of the language. If we stop using the word race uh, and look to other forms of hate crime, uh, then, you know, and we stop believing that we're from different genetic gene pools, uh, there is no gene for race. There is no chromosome for race. Any health service person will tell you that. Uh, there's a few inherent geographic uh, illnesses, sickle cells, so on and so forth. A few genetic illnesses passed down through people. Uh, but there's no we're humans. We're from the human race. So if we're going to use language, let's use it correctly. <laughs> you know, I ask that question everywhere I go. If from the same human race, how can anyone be racist? And not one person has been able to answer it. Uh, so, and, and dismantling that, uh, like the word Caucasian, uh, it's, in, it's in a language, it's in a law. It'll never happen in my lifetime. But if you can question people uh, and just suggest other types, you know, we're from different phenotypes, different noses, different colours, different shades. Our poetry reflects that. 
You know, we do a poem with 50 colours in that aren't black and white, many, many shades. So we're all there just, poets don't have the answers. Uh, we're not preachers or teachers, uh, so don't look to us for the answers. What poets do is they ask questions about language and then they leg it really quickly. <laughs> and let everyone, everyone sort of do it, you know, just because these are words that they're ever-changing things. In response to Rich's uh, comments, it made me think about how we as a charity developed in terms of the consequences of, you know, the mindset of, of the language. So before you go any further, we, who's we as a charity? What so, does a charity do? So Let's Feed Brum is a charity that works with rough sleepers in Birmingham City Centre and the high streets around Birmingham. And our aim essentially is to let those people feel alone on the streets, feel as if that there is somebody that cares somebody that's offering friendship. We do provide things like food and supplies, but they're really a means to an end. It's about a relationship and forming a relationship and trying to embed ourselves within the street community as, as people who are, best way of describing is in it together, you know, because actually there's no separation between that person, you know, someone who's, who's, who's coming out as a volunteer and someone who's living out on the street. We're both people. You know, and one individual is, is struggling out there and and we're trying to find some kind of support that can, you know, help that person to to go on a track which is which is like where they would like to go. How can we assist in that? Now, one of the the things that we see is the system and the system only works for people who want to go a certain path. Well actually, generally the system what the system offers is a pathway that no one wants you know so people make the decision to stay on the street rather than use the system and the system is a consequence of the mindset of the political agendas of whichever party or group you want to mention in this country right the fact that nothing much is being done is because no, no one wants to do much about it and I think the reason for that is because of the way people think about situations generally. So our response to that was, because very early on we used to signpost people to organisations. So, ah, oh, you're homeless, you need to go and speak to this organisation that can you accommodation. Oh, you have a substance misuse issue, you need to, that's the organisation. Or you have mental health issue that's the organization now what of course every organization has a process but then they all tie in with each other and very early on well very early on took me two or three years to really understand that what was really going on was that the the different organizations were in competition with each other to stay in existence to keep the organizations alive and going and obviously pay their staff and all of that. And that was actually more important than the individual needs of people on the day-to-day. -day. So where we've gone down, the, we've gone down the road of trying to, what we're doing today, the conversation we're having now, is it impacting on the needs of whoever is going to be sleeping rough on the streets tonight in the city? And I don't mean that just in practical terms. But in terms of like the whole answer for an individual. So I would say having this conversation with you now is impacting positively on that because 
it is attacking one of the things, which is the use of language around that whole situation. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a situation, as you say, and how those situations are defined and those people that are involved in those situations are defined is very important. Every word has a, has a shade of meaning. You know, when you hear of Katie Hopkins describing immigrants as vem, uh, vermin, you know, dehumanizing people, you know, uh, Akala, I believe, says something along the lines of, you know, that's a mandate for murder. The next step is extermination or letting, allowing people to die because they're seen as l- less than people. Are we talking um, about the journalist, Katie Hopkins? However you want to call her, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's a word that you could use to describe this lady. <laughs> yeah, she's, yeah. Uh, you know, and, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, 100%, you're 100% right. The conversations need to be thoughtful. In, and I think, obviously, understanding people from there because I think someone being homeless or being on uh, always is always dependent on drugs or, or whatnot obviously has a reason for that and I guess that underlying reason that's going to require skill tact communication empathy all these different values that we're you know we've kind of spoken a little bit about today De- you know deployed sensitively you know, to, to get to the root of supporting that person, that individual. Yeah, and unfortunately, money is also a big factor, it seems, for most organisational remits. You know, uh, we've spoke with an organisation to do with their equality, diversity and inclusion targets. And funnily enough, very little, what's the word, incentive was given to actually reaching those targets uh, in the sense of, you know, money being allocated uh, or any kind of recognition for doing so, for reaching those targets. Hence, those targets are rarely met. So how we incentivize support and making, you know, real impact and supporting people, you know, uh, and changing lives is it needs to be looked at as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's mad that you even have to incentivize treating people equally and fairly. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. And these are organisations or charities, you would assume that would be their mission goal in any way. Do you know what I mean? Their motivation, their intent. But, but, just... we've, but we've kind of accepted the fact, haven't we, that it's a fact that people think the way that they're kind of programmed to think because of the way language is used. So, you know, you, you talked about the shared values where you bring, you, you mentioned about heads of departments. You know, and I'm sure this applies to CEOs, you know, in, in charities. You, there's an assumption that we make that somebody who works for an organisation is doing the job that needs doing. I mean, don't we all, I mean, this isn't, you know, the very assumption that I had when I started going out on the streets was that, oh, surely the council has a system for helping people who are sleeping rough. And it's just as simply you access the system and... Bob's your uncle. Everything gets sorted out. Uh, so isn't that though, a consequence of the very language that we've been conditioned with as we were growing up? It's like authority deals with the issues. And, well, you know, the NHS will solve your problem, whatever you've got. You know, the council will solve homeless. You know, so we grow up using a kind of language where you just assume those who have authority and are able to administer service, just do their job. But they don't, do they? And that that assumption's planted in your childhood and Mm -hmm. the constructs that you experience your reality through Mm -hmm. 
integrate that idea in the fabric of your being as you grow up complacent mm. and displacing your responsibility and then also willing to be controlled that's not necessarily a conscious willingness mm. it's the submission that you're brought up with yeah. to accept yeah you have to be quite well educated you know in order to fill in some of these forms to get help as well do you know you, you have I to know. Have, <laughs> I, I, I mean I, when I went on to Universal Credit or because I, I was homeless for a little bit myself due to you know having to break down etc etc trying to reaccess, re-engage with those support services was during my, my time of duress very difficult and I think people who set the policies as well have very little lived experience of someone in that position as well so people setting policy are also out of touch uh, from someone who requires that sort of input support but yeah it's interesting when we're heading I mean food banks 10 years ago wasn't even a word now there's more food banks than McDonald's you know in this country and it's a it's a very necessary service and we need to you know that's another thing that you know we need to be looking at all, all these austerity measures cuts or people want to call it austerity some other people might want to call it wealth transfer from public funds to private pockets you know so it's an interesting time that we're in and how language is used yeah it's it's about critical critical listening now i think yeah it's it's interesting times that we're in very interesting time i think we're on the precipice of some global changes that are going to be seen look back on in history as a pivotal moment in our uh, human story Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you there, absolutely. I mean, I'd like to finish on words that you used. You know, we've, we've seen how um, language can be used destructively. And really, the answer really lies now in using that language constructively. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> Not just because I said it. <laughs> so we, we always ask our guests to share a few words from their own favourite song that they've written or that they've listened to by somebody else and the reason is because we believe that writing helps writing helps you to process what's happened in the day writing helps you to organize your thoughts writing helps you to express what's happened your emotions and also to rewrite things in a way that can be less damaging in your mind you can go over and over things that have happened arguments past hurts by reframing them where you're maybe in more of a position of power or you have more empathy for another person you can take the sting out of a memory that could cause you harm so we'd like to ask the listeners grab a pen and a piece of paper and pop a few words down could be the ones that you've heard from curly now that he's quoting from a lyric or a poem or you could use the words as a title, or you could just simply draw out one word and then do a little mind map or a thought shower around it and see what comes out, but do something with it. So Curly, what are you going to leave us with? So these aren't my words. These are the sentiments from a very talented individual, a very thought-provoking individual, a very emotive individual who showed a lot of humanity. I feel and that individual was Tupac Shakur and he wrote a fantastic poem he started out writing poetry and this poem is called The Rose That Grew From The Concrete so did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete 
proofing nature's laws wrong, it learned to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from the concrete, but no one else even cared. Woo! <laughs> Overcoming the possible lads. Yes. Um, and I think, yeah, um, it's never the project, it's always the people. So be mindful of the people that you're around. Think about the language that they're using. Words resonate, energy. And I think if you're around constructive, positive people, that tends to feature in your thoughts and actions as well as you think so you become so yeah do an assessment of, of the people around you is what i would say and uh yeah <laughs> i think you will begin to start seeing patterns forming as well around the people that you align uh, align with as well just based on the words that they use but yeah interesting times but thank you so much for your time and, and letting me waffle on <laughs> there's been no waffling whatsoever it's no. been insightful it's been powerful, thought-provoking, mind-boggling, and paradigm-shifting, I think. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah, what did you do this morning? Well, I had, a little got... par- I had a paradigm shift at 12.30. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a lot of words. It's been great, great to meet you, Curly. Keep it, keep on what you're doing. It's amazing. I definitely would like to, you know, bump up with you guys again in the, in the future, not too distant future, just to... Absolutely. Yeah, we'll reconvene uh, another digital space at another time. Definitely. It'd be lovely. That'd be lovely. And so on behalf of myself and Rich from Memo Rhyme, let's say thank you so much for having us on your show. Really thank appreciate you. It. So where can people find you on the socials? So memorime.com is our website. Curly's Poetry, that's me as an, a kind of individual operator. Yeah, so uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if you type in Memorime then you'll, you'll, you'll find us, no doubt. Okay, great yes. stuff. We'll put all the links in the description for the podcast. Big ups, mate. All the best. Take care. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Maximum respect if you want to inject. It's not for me. I want a baby. I haven't come this far to see my future offspring put at risk. Someone somewhere is making a packet and it makes me sick. I am cleaning my body. I'm 42 in a few weeks. I didn't plan it like this, but shit, man, I'm past my peak. To be honest, I got offered the fast track. You're on the front line. My mum and my sister and my niece are vulnerable. I ain't seen them in time, so I thought I'd do it. A friend told me no. Haven't you heard you're at risk of stroke? Tomorrow it's March of 26. I'll get to day trip, but do I put my mum at risk? She's had the vaccine, my sis had the vaccine, my niece, she's so ill, they told her that she could. She went to have it, they turned her away last minute. The doc on the day said, you're too well risk for us here, so go, away. Now her heart is on fire, not with love. To fix it, she has to go in and out of hospital where Covid is at home. She's vulnerable, her treatment's a joke. Only I am not laughing. She got sent away that day, but the doctor who sent her still got his pay. One says one thing, another another. Complicate this, complicate that. Comprehend this, I'm sick of you, you twat. You've been listening to Blow With The Flow podcast by Hip Hop Heels UK. Follow us on socials at Hip Hop Heels UK. Season 2 was funded by the Arts Council.
Thank you for listening.